on the air and streaming on the web since 1996, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again, my name is Jason Drury and welcome once again to Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. Lee Phillips is a composer, orchestrator and producer with experience in creating unique compositions and orchestrations for media, concert performances and CD recordings. Previous collaborations include BAFTA-winning composer John Ottoman, Grammy Award-winning television composer Joe Harnell, Beach to Cola, Brad Fidel, London Philharmonic Orchestra, Silver Screen Records, and Film Score Reconstruction Specialist Tadlow Music. His compositions and arrangements feature in productions by companies such as Decca Records, Sky, IMAX, ITV, Channel 4, Prometheus Records, Classic FM, Amazon Studios, the BBC and Marvel Studios. In 2006, Lee was presented with a Jerry Goldsmith Award for his original score from a theatrical production of The Jungle Book. And in 2014, he was the recipient of the IFMCA Special Award for the reconstruction of Jerry Goldsmith's score from The Salamander. When not orchestrating or composing, Lee is usually found at Smeky Music Studios in Prague, fulfilling his other role as a freelance producer for film, TV, video game and album recording sessions. In May 2023, for Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast, I had the immense pleasure of talking to Lee Phillips again via clean feed in Prague, situated close to the Smeky Film Music Studios. Incidentally, Lee Phillips was the first person I ever interviewed on my previous station, Casper, way back in 2013. During this new interview, the first part of a two-part interview show, amongst other things, we talk about his musical beginnings, how he started getting into orchestration work and the reconstruction of scores, and how he began his collaboration with James Fitzpatrick and Tadlow Records. Also, during both parts of the show, you'll be hearing music of which Lee Phillips has orchestrated or reconstructed, chosen specially by Lee for these shows to showcase his immense talent. Music just like this.
Lee Phillips, welcome to Talking Soundtracks. Thank you very much, Jason. It's it's lovely to be here and lovely to be talking with you again after so long. Wonderful. Now, can you explain what were your musical beginnings? Um, I started off initially with thoughts of becoming a professional trumpet player because I started learning the cornet when I was 12 years old and I progressed to the musical grades very quickly and then kind of followed the the usual routes of uh, taking A-level, uh, GCSE, sorry, and then A-level music in school, playing in local brass bands and playing trumpet in local youth orchestras. And then there was the, like I said, kind of like the, the, the natural progression to playing for music conservatoire. I applied and was accepted at Welsh College of Music and Drama. It wasn't royal then, it is now, so I can't say I went to the Royal College of the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama because I didn't. I went to the Welsh College of Music and Drama as it was then. When I was accepted there, I was accepted to do the performance course, which was some sort of Welsh College diploma in performance. But while I was doing my A levels, I began to get a real kind of like keen interest in composition and particularly film composition. So when I was accepted into Welsh College of Music and Drama, I wrote them a letter because this was pre-email and asked them if I could transfer onto their academic course, which was then a Bachelor of Arts course, which would allow me to both specialise in performance, but also it would allow me to receive tuition in composition and orchestration. And luckily for me, I think that the stars were sort of like somewhat aligned at this particular point in time because the year that my cohort started, they had a new lecturer there, Jim Harrison, who was an orchestrator and copyist from London, who was a specialist in film composition. So I spent the next three years not only performing with the college orchestra and wind ensemble, but also specialising in composition and composition for film and orchestration, uh, studying with Jim Harrison and Mervyn Birch, who was quite a well-known Welsh composer, who's written a, a, a load of wrote because he, he passed a few years ago. Uh, Mervyn Birch was a, a wonderful guy, really, really knowledgeable, encouraging, enthusiastic, great with his students, and Mervyn was a really prolific composer of concert music, particularly opera. Unfortunately, I don't think much of it has been recorded, but we certainly performed a lot of his music in, in college, so that was a really a lovely time to be there. I, I got lucky with my tutors. So when actually did your interest in film was the beginning of your early years? Ah, right, okay. So the, the interest in film music actually sort of predates this somewhat. And I think I kind of started getting interested in film music from about the age of 13 or 14. And this was just purely a fluke. I mean, this is, this is a somewhat convoluted story and it, it's a bit silly, but bear with me. You know, like when, you, when you're a, a, like a, a young kid and you're sort of playing with your toys, your spaceships and sort of stuff like that because, you know, I'm, I'm part of the Star Wars era. Well, kind of like when I was playing with my spaceships as a, 
as a kid, the action always had a theme tune. You know, you'd, you'd be singing something along while you were playing. Weirdly enough, although I was kind of like a big Star Wars fan, whatever I was singing when I was a kid, it wasn't the theme from Star Wars. It was a, it, it was another tune. I didn't have a clue what it was, but I kept on singing it while I was playing with spaceships. And then when, when I sort of outgrew that period when that was sort of like long behind me although i think i'm back in it now i switched on the television like i said i was around like 13 or 14 years old and star trek the motion picture happened to be showing on itv and i was kind of like stunned because it, it was sort of like a real road to damascus moment it was an epiphany because there was the theme that i'd been singing when i was a kid playing with spaceships. It was Jerry Goldsmith's scene from Star Trek The Motion Picture. And it was literally like a sort of like a lightning bolt. I was like, wow, this is, this is it. And from that point, I kind of started to make a concerted effort to, to, to seek out film music albums and tape cassettes. And this is before I had a CD player, but particularly music by Jerry Goldsmith. But to be honest with you, it was like only when I started to try and get hold of it did I realize how bloody difficult it was to get hold of the stuff. I had no idea where to get the things from. And that led me to exploring a shop in Cardiff. Bear in mind, I didn't get hold of Star Trek The Motion Picture as as an album in any shape or form until a few years later because I simply could not find it. But I remember going to a record shop in Cardiff and flicking through the soundtracks and there was an edition of uh, the silver screen edition of Alien. And of course, I, I hadn't seen Alien at this point. I had a clue what it was, but I saw the name on the front and it, and it was Goldsmith. So I thought, oh man, this this is going to be just like Star Trek. And of course, you know, so I, I buy this thing and I get it home and I switch it on and boy, was was that a shock.
I, I, I wasn't disappointed. I was kind of more intrigued and fascinated by it because although I think, and, and certainly as far as the Silver Screen album was concerned, because, you know, that was obviously edited down to the highlights only. And although it's, you know, it's, it's a real out there and avant-garde score, I, I, I think it's still really accessible. So, although I was sort of shocked that it didn't sound anything like Star Trek, I was still nonetheless kind of fascinated with it and, and really grew to love it. And of course, this is back in the day then when the silver screen contact details were written on the back of the album if you wanted to receive their catalogue. And that was the game changer for me because I, I, I wrote off to them, you know, sent a letter and asked if I could have a copy of their catalogue. And of course this thing came through and I hit the mother load. This is where I could get all these amazing soundtracks and and that really sort of like started off my collection or my collecting as it were because I still do it the same as everybody else because I'm still a fan. How do you think that music came into your head and stuck there? This is, the, the, this is quite interesting because I would have seen Star Trek the motion picture in 1979 in the cinema but you know the the really weird thing is is i, I used to go this isn't weird I, I used to go to the cinema with my grandfather sort of virtually every week but what is weird is the fact that i would have only have seen star trek once and i'm guessing from about the age of eight or nine i would have been like singing or humming this tune when i when i was playing so i mean it, it, it must have made a real big impact on me on a really sort of subliminal or subconscious level because this tune was fixed in there. Okay, kind of like what I was singing was a bit of a variation, you know, it wasn't it wasn't note for note, but the basic thing was there and it was close enough for me to recognize it when it came on television a few years later and I just happened to catch it. So that's the thing that, 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 that kind of makes it more interesting to me is, is the fact that it's, you know, I, I wouldn't have had it on record and I would only have gone to see the film just once. But, you know, it, it obviously made that much of an impact. I mean, it, it's a great tune, isn't it? And, you know, Goldsmith was such a, a master at creating memorable themes for, you know, film franchise uh, and or television, you know, real earworms. And it obviously worked with me as I did with Star Trek because that really stuck. Now... As you said, you're, you're a huge fan of film music for quite a young age. Now, how did you actually get into the film music business? Oh, there's a there's a question. There's a really, really long and convoluted journey from where I started to where things are now, I guess. But it would have started, you know, with my interest in film music in school and carrying that forward into music conservatoire where everything I did, although I was studying and writing concert music, the, the other half of my program was was kind of dedicated to orchestration and music for film and theatre. So I, I ended up scoring quite a few plays while I was in the college because of course it was a college of music and drama so there were always theatre productions happening and most of those required music of, of some sort. So I didn't kind of go seeking those out. It's kind of like our composition tutors or our program leaders kind of 
paired us up with directors and placed us in productions and stuff like that. So it, it was a good place to, to get a feel for the collaborative process, which can, which when you're young can be, well, I don't know if it's just when you're young because it can be any age, can be quite painful because composers are an insecure bunch. And we, we feel things deeply when it comes to people critiquing and being <laughs> criticizing our music. There's nothing so brutal as as you sort of like being a young or you know, fledgling dramatic composer and being paired up with a director, then giving you an instruction. You're going away and spending hours writing something and you're playing in the lines individually on a multi-track recorder because this is <laughs> this is sort of like almost before we were using doors, certainly in college, you know, we weren't using digital workstations. It was just tape. So it's like playing this stuff in, thinking this is the best thing ever. They're going to love it. And if you take it to them, but they'd be like, oh, yeah, it's really good. But it's it, it's totally unsuitable. You know, as soon as that happens, you're absolutely crushed. Ego takes a battering. So even, you know, before they, they let us loose on the world, as it were, you we had some good, I think, sort of valuable experiences once we were students. And I also managed to score some student animations. Once I left the college, I did quite a lot of work with uh, the University of Glamorgan and, and their animation department because they were going to have a show at one of the animation festivals. So I was lucky enough to spend a good few months working with their animators, writing music for each of their animations. But i got to be honest, once... Uh, and this isn't just me, this is everybody who was leaving college at that time, or at least the, the the Welsh college. We didn't really have a clue on what we were doing, because unlike programs now, like, you know, the, the Royal College and a lot of the programs in the American colleges and university, nobody sort of really prepares you for the business side of things or advises you on how to secure work. So although... Our education was terrific. I have zero complaints about the tuition that we received and Welsh College. And I tell everybody this, that Welsh College had the best library that I've seen to this day. It was so jam-packed with scores and CDs. But we kind of like acquired these skills and learned these techniques. And then really, once we left, we didn't know wholly what to do with them. So I was floundering for years. You know, like I said, I did some work for the Animation College. I, I did some short films. I uh, was continuing to write music for the old theatre production, but I didn't know what to do. So I started teaching. Before I was uh, a head of music in a tertiary college in Wales, I spent several years as a peripatetic brass tutor. So I was just traveling around from school to school in the area, teaching kids how to play trumpet, corner, trombone, French horn, or or whatever. But I was still quite active at this time as a, as a brass player, particularly in brass bands. And I started doing quite a few film music arrangements for the, the band that I was playing for at the time. This is sort of going up to about the sort of mid-90s, you know, because I, I was getting more of these arrangements performed in, in concerts because the band would try them out for me and they'd quite enjoy some of them. Others they, others they think would, were shit. But then I happened to send one of these arrangements to a relatively well-known brass band publisher right and round, and they accepted it. It was an arrangement of, of, of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which was a show that, that, that I really loved and still do. I think it's, uh, I think it's fantastic and one of, one of the best Trek shows. 
And from that point onwards, I started getting a few more film music arrangements published for Brass Band. Of course, this has got nothing to do with orchestras. But of course, at the same time, in parallel to this, while I was doing all these arrangements, you know, even the ones that the band rejected or thought were, were terrible and they wouldn't, they, they would never play them in concert. All this time, I was kind of practicing my transcription skills because, you know, there was no sheet music available for this stuff, so it would all be taken down by ear. And little did I know back then that, that it would sort of put me in really, really good stead for work that I was going to do years down the line. But after I started getting these film music arrangements published by the Brass Band Publisher, I started dabbling in doing orchestral arrangements of film music and sending those out to different orchestras to see if they would be interested in either commissioning new arrangements or simply just performing them in concert. There was no financial gain from this at all. I was, I was kind of just doing it to see if I could get stuff out there. And, you know, the the responses from the orchestras were varied. How can I say? I'm not talking about big gun orchestras like, you know, London Symphony and Royal Philharmonic and stuff like that. I, I, I'm simply talking about, like, youth orchestras and local orchestras. And, you know, sometimes I'd get a, a message back saying, oh, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. And others would happily take the arrangement and, and play them. I, I did this for years just sending arrangements and, and building up a catalogue of things, practising and improving my skill set, I guess. You know, I'm not saying that the early arrangements were bad, but obviously there was, was a trajectory and there was room for improvement and you, you kind of learn and pick up more things as you go. But then I started teaching in this tertiary college in about 2002, still doing sort of orchestral arrangements and seeing if people were interested in playing them, still doing brass band arrangements and seeing if they would be published and see if people would be interested in playing them. And then I happened across John Ottman's website and he'd just completed work on X-Men 2, which I thought was a, a, a really, really cool score. And I noticed on this website, he mentioned this film called Public Access. And uh, this final sort of like sentence on the write-up was, ah, someday I, I hope to get this 
orchestrated and performed by a live orchestra. And I, and I just thought, hmm, that's interesting. So did, I emailed him because this is this is obviously, you know, so like in, in the early 2000s, so email is now a thing. I didn't have to write the letter or send a pigeon or anything like that. Yeah, I write him an email and said, you know, you, you don't have a clue who I am. I'm nobody. I, I'm just some some guy who's interested in film music and, and really likes doing arrangements. I couldn't help notice that he was looking for somebody to orchestrate public access. I basically just said, okay, I'll do it. Which, of course, I think, I, I don't know what his reaction would have been, but, you know, he, he humoured me and he was all, well, you know, you, you're kind of like an unknown quantity. Why don't you do the main titles and see if it's any good? So I did a transcription from the, the audio on his website of the main titles and sent him sort of like a demo, you know, like a, a mock-up from uh, Sibelius. And he really liked it. And he said, fine, yes, okay, let's agree a price and you can do the, the, the rest of the score. And uh, th that was a real boost to me personally. But then I said, okay, cool. If you can send me any materials you have, I can work on this for you over the next couple of months because obviously I was still, I, I was still a full-time teacher. And a couple of weeks later, I received a little jiffy bag in the post and there was just like a CD in there, which was his, his own copy of the score. And so I emailed him. I was like, oh, John, thanks so much for this. When am I going to get any, perform this on synthesizer? So like, when are we going to get any charts, you know, for, for, for the synth music so I can you know, use it as a basis for, for, for the orchestration? And he said that. Ah, no, sorry. When sheet music I had got lost when I moved house, the CD is all there is. So, so I kind of thought, oh, where But I said, I'm going to do it, so I got to do it. But of course, you know, once I actually started work on it, it wasn't so bad because I'd been practicing transcription for absolute donkeys. You know, this, this is kind of how I did all my arrangement. In the end, this was no different. It just happened to be just like an A-list Hollywood composer. That was kind of like the, the the big difference with it. But anyway, you know, I, I, I did the, the score and I think I kind of did like, you know, did, did an okay job on it. I sent it to him uh, along with, you know, like a load of demos and he seemed quite, uh, quite happy. It's never been recorded and <laughs> not yet. And that's a shame. But I think that if, if it was, I'd need to go back to it and revise it because I, I actually prepared the scores and the, the part sets uh, I think would need a little bit of a redo because I didn't know how to produce proper part sets for people. The stuff I was producing back then, it, it was just, okay, I'm sure this is readable. There, there was no consideration to layout and clarity and ease of reading and page turns and how that affects performance and recording. None of that even sort of factored with me at all so I think it would need a bit of a polish but certainly fundamentally the work would have been done on that and I think it it's kind of okay And 
Another big name you helped out was a certain Joseph Harnell on the suite from the school for Vina. How did that collaboration come about? Um, ah, oh yeah, Joe, what, what, what absolute, such a wonderful person. And again, somebody who was willing to give me a chance to do something. Because obviously I, I was kind of building up relationships with various orchestras. And again, these were just kind of like orchestras in the surrounding areas. And the, the way that, that the work with Joe came about was pr pretty much exactly the same as, as John. It, it was a speculative email, but mainly because the simple reason was I loved his music from V and there was no other motivation behind it. So I, I just wrote him an email and said, I hope you don't mind me, me contacting you cold as it were. You know, you, you've not got a clue who I am, but you know, I, I really loved the music for this series forever, ever since I saw it on television back in 1984, is it, when V aired? Would you allow me to, or would you be okay with me preparing a concert suite of, of music from V for public performance? And he wrote back and he thought it was like an amazing idea. And I was so happy and, and a little bit taken aback. But then he, and I tell you what, I've got all the charts here. Um, if I get uh, FedEx on the phone, I can send them to you as long as you send them back, as long as you pay for the postage and send them back to me. I was like, yeah, sure. Okay. And that's how it happened. You know, a, 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 about a week later, I, I was in the college and uh, I got a phone call from reception. Uh, there's FedEx here for you. And there's this huge package of, of the original scores from V. So over email, we kind of like discussed what would be used to comprise the suite. Then I used the, the original charts as the basis for a new orchestration because obviously it's going to be a slightly different division or distribution of instrumentation compared to the orchestra that he had. I just kind of used those scores as a basis for the construction of the new suite. But it kind of got like really interesting because there were, there were parts of it where I remember him kind of sending a fax and saying, this was a theme that I wrote for a particular part, but Kenny rejected it. So do you want to use this and expand on it and put that in as part of the suite also? So it was an incredible experience. And I'd send PDFs of the scores I was doing to him for, for his sort of like perusal and for him to cast an eye over things. And, and you know, he was quite advanced in years when, when we started communicating, but he was so freaking sharp. It was unbelievable. And we'd be like, ah, you should put a quaver rest in this bar here simply because it's an easier point for the instruments to cut off. And you need to tying this thing over you need to put a dot here you need to think about the entries here so he started just like firing off all these things that I, I should have been thinking about that would have made a performance that much more effective and immediately effective stuff that was going to ultimately save time if you put it in front of an orchestra and ask them to play it his eye for detail was incredible I took a lot away from that experience because I hadn't worked with somebody who was so particular before. With Joe, it was a really a case of like dotting every I and crossing every T. It was it, it was quite remarkable, and and that I think was particularly as an orchestrator spending that time w working working on the suites with Joe was 
invaluable. I took so much away from that. It really was wonderful. I enjoyed every minute. Unlike sort of my 19-year-old self who was getting crushed and beaten down by student drama directors saying that, that the music I was doing wasn't any good. There was none of that. When, when Joe criticised something, it wasn't taken badly. I don't know whether I just, you know, lost the ego over the years, but every criticism was really a valid and a useful thought. And I, I've carried everything that, that he said through to this day. Uh, you know, it was it was brilliant. So many good things about Joe Harnell. Uh, one of my compatriots is Robert Daniels, who I do a number of shows with, and he keeps telling me how much he loved interviewing Joe Harnell. He was such a lovely guy, and I feel very sad I didn't have a chance to interview him myself. He was incredible, and a lot of people aren't aware of his pedigree either. I don't mean this the wrong way, but you know, a lot of people, particularly sort of like younger composers, would see this name Joe Harnell. It's like, oh yeah, this guy who just wrote some stuff for television back in the seventies. It's like not the case. This guy was taught by William Walton and Nadia Boulanger. You know, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. And his experience and his 
education shone through everything he did. He was phenomenal, really, really was, and so encouraging and and helpful and always full of good advice. Now, tell us how you first met James Fitzpatrick. Yeah, yeah, indeed. This, again, is, is something that could be a convoluted story behind anything, but this is all sort of like happening around the same time here, so from about 2004 onwards. Once I started doing the stuff for, with John Ottman and doing stuff with Joe Harnell, there were some people who were aware of it and other people who, who weren't. Why would they be aware of what I was doing? A colleague of mine, in the college in which I was teaching, his son played principal trumpet for the Halle Orchestra. They were doing a film music concert and they were short of a couple of items on the program because they couldn't hire the music. And Tony Small, who was the trumpet tutor in the college, he said to his son, because this just cropped up in conversation, Gareth Small, who's the trumpet player, must have just mentioned it to his father, oh, we were kind of struggling for a couple of arrangements or we're looking for things. And Tony was just like, ah, I know a guy who might be able to do this for you. So Tony mentioned it to me and I said, hell yeah, give them my details. And the Halle Orchestra got in touch and said, oh, we need an arrangement of the end credits of Medicine Man. And we want to do a Hollow Man in the program as well. And I thought, oh, wow, this is, this is amazing. So uh, we, we need it sort of like fairly, fairly quickly. We need it in sort of like about two weeks of course, I've met tight deadlines these days, but at the time that was that was kind of like a big deal because you know, I, I was still teaching full time. But anyway, I, they they sent me the orchestra lineup, and Medicine Man was a bit of an ask because it it, it was so reliant on certain synthetic textures. It, it was sort of like difficult to change those up and make it work entirely acoustically. But I think it was okay, and they seemed happy with it. Hollow Man was a bit more straightforward. Um, so I was really, really happy to do that for them. Sorry, I, I know we're talking about James, but the, the, there are so many avenues to explore here because the thing with the Halle Orchestra is that was like the, that was a real big learning curve for me, and it was a real big learning curve with regards to part preparation because at this time Bex Thomas wasn't working with me as as a copyist. I was doing all the stuff myself. So I did the scores and I prepped all the parts and I sent it to the librarian. They were super nice about things. They, they were very understanding about things. You couldn't help but notice the telling off you were getting in the most, in probably not the most subtle of ways. I had a message of this guy saying, mm, the, the, the part set you provided is a little bit problematic because everything is so small. This was from Edison Man. This is the thing I mentioned earlier on. Is that I, I was clueless about this, this sort of stuff, about formatting and things, because when it came to actual practical things although in college we'd received a really good education about sort of like how to compose there was no instruction to give them just like a, how these things should be presented to, to, to musicians to be quite honest with you when we played our own stuff and got our mates to play stuff in college we, we'd scribble things down on manuscript by hand there, there, there was no digital typesetting so everything was of a particular size because you know the, the, the manuscript was usually of a particular size particularly a4 a4 books but of course, this was all different when it was a digital arrangement that we were using things like Sibelius and stuff like that in later years. And this is a problem with the Halle. If I hadn't written the parts, it probably would have been fine. But of course, this was produced on Sibelius. I sent them things and the head librarian got back, said, read these. And he basically sent me this PDF of the Molar guidelines of it, which is like this music librarians association on how you should present orchestral parts to players. 
So I thought, ooh, so in, in the politest way, he's basically telling me my parts are shit and I really need to take a read of this. But they were lovely about it. He, looks, he said, like, look, just, just redo the stuff for Medicine Man. Hollow Man is actually fine. How that worked, I don't know. No, actually, I do. I think what it was, I was trying to condense everything into two fewer pages for the players. So Hollow Man was just like a one-page arrangement for everybody anyway, so that was no problem. But Medicine Man, because it was such a long piece, I tried to squidge everything onto a couple of pages, and of course the things got smaller and smaller and smaller, and I, I just didn't think about it. That, again, was like another valuable learning experience, which, which I took forward into further years. The arrangements were good, I guess, and they were happy with them. But while I was doing these arrangements and while I was doing other stuff, I was constantly pestering James Fitzpatrick, sending him these random PDF arrangements in email. Hello, James, you don't know me, but I know you do a lot of recording with the City of Brock Philharmonic. Would you be interested in, in using this in a concert, in a recording or something? I, I just I just like send him stuff every couple of months. He's probably thinking, who the, who the hell is this? He never used to reply to the emails, but after a few years, of just me doing this religiously. In the end, I, I didn't even think about doing it. I, ju I just used to send things automatically. And I, I don't know whether he looked at them or whether he binned them. But a few years later, this must have been must have like 2007, 2008 or something like that, I get an email out of the blue from James saying, ah, oh, yes, I, I, I know you've done some work with the Halle and things like that. I'm wanting to do a, a complete recording of Ernest Gold's score for Exodus. Would you be interested in doing the reconstruction? And that was it. So, of course, I jumped on the chance. But then a couple of weeks later, he sent me an email saying, ah, because of scheduling problems, we've got to delay the album. So when I finally did get to work on it, I, I was orchestrating it along with four other people because James needed to get it done in, in sort of really... He needed to get everything together in a month or something crazy like that. And, you know, it's, it, it's a big old score. I do remember that... The cues that, that I ended up doing were actually the cues for which they didn't have any sketches or any manuscripts. So, uh, although there were sketches available, because I, 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 who, I, I'm trying to think who the other guys on the project was. Adam Saunders was, was one of the other orchestrators on it, who's, who's been back and forth to Smetchki quite, uh, quite a few times, because uh, he's part of Cousin Saunders' music production team. I know the other guys had sketches, but James sent me the MP3s of the movie Rip. So my first thing for Tableau was a transcription. So I'm kind of like glad that I'd been, I'd already been doing this for years because although it was a big deal because, you know, I'd never had anything recorded before and it was a real big deal working. For, for me personally, it was a big deal working with James because I'd seen his name on virtually like 50% of my CD collection. And of course, Nick was conducting, so... This was also a big deal. But that was how the introduction to, to James Fitzpatrick comes along. It's, it's a long, wavy road, but, but it started with Exodus.
which of your other early works for Tadlow stood out for you? There was some stuff I did around the same time as Exodus for Silver Screen, and the the thing that kicked me off into working with them was they did that really cool series of sort of like yearbook compilation albums, film music 2007, 2008, 2009, and I think they kind of like stopped it in 2013 or something like that because it, it was kind of like a, an expensive venture. But the f- very first thing I did for Silver Screen was driving with the top down from Iron Man. That's kind of got like a little bit of a special place in my own mind because that was the first time I worked with Silver. I'm from about 2009 till about, about a couple of years ago because now I think they do a, a lot more stuff kind of in the box as it were. We, we, we don't do that much recording with Silver anymore because I think they do a lot more programmed music because they've spent out on, on real expensive virtual instrumentation because it's a lot cheaper than an orchestra. There were some lovely assignments with Silver. I still enjoy working with Rick Clark when, whenever I can. I remember the orchestra did an amazing performance of Chikino's Star Trek, which was an arrangement I did for... I can't remember if it was, if it was for one of their film music reviews or it was for the Star Trek album, but it, it appeared on two things. I can't remember what it was for, but, but, but the orchestra were just absolutely out of this world playing that.
they auctioned a lovely performance of the theme from Castaway, which is obviously just for piano, strings, and an oboe. I remember that because that that was a very early arrangement I did for them, and a, another one which they really sort of like played their socks off. It's one of those performances where it's a little more than just reading the dots and and recording some music almost like dispassionately. There was some real like feeling behind the performance. It was the theme from the Goonies, which uh, which was a really early one. I, I'm not sure, but that seems to have made it onto an advert for something like recently. I think it's, it's been licensed for an advert. So I th- I think that's the one I did with. Silver, like years ago, because at the time, of course, Silver were really sort of like big onto doing carbon copy performances. So everything had to be as close, everything had to match the original version as closely as possible. As you're a huge Jerry Goldsmith fan, a lot of your work seems to be linked to Jerry Goldsmith, and your reconstruction of the Salamander by Ear was very highly well received. In fact, it won an 
IFMCA Special Award have noticed. How long did that take you to work on the reconstruction of Salamander? Um, I think it was about four months from top to tail. It was an interesting situation because James was aware of the scarcity of material. And thinking about this rightly, that we were recording Quo Vadis at the time, and we'd just finished one of the days, and we were walking from the studio to go to dinner. It was Nick James and myself, and James kind of just did what he was very, very good at doing, and that was just like, drop a bombshell in the middle of casual conversation. And he says, so, um, do you think you'd be up for reconstructing some Goldsmith? It's like, ah, yeah, yeah, sure. Nick is more concerned about what what we're going to have for dinner. But James is saying, oh, yeah, yeah. So, so the next thing would be some goldsmith. I'm like, this is amazing, terrific. And he said, yeah, there's, there's a bit of a problem. I, I said, what's that? He said, there's no scores. I was like, ah, right. I said, so it's it's audio only, I, I asked. I, I'd never even heard of the film. I didn't even know Goldsmith did something called The Salamander. I, I said this to him at the time. I said, this is new to me. I'm, I'm not at all familiar with it. I said, so what have you got? Like, what what can I expect? He said, well, I've got a Polish DVD. What? He said, yeah, yeah, I've got the, I've got a DVD uh, version of it from Poland. He said, it's a good addition because it's the only one that's actually got the end credits on there. Because uh, apparently there, there were loads of sort of UK editions and things or or other editions which, which cropped off the end titles, which makes no sense whatsoever. But anyway, this had the complete score. And he said, would you be interested? Whether the prospect was terrifying or not, it really didn't factor into it, you know, because he was goldsmith. So I was going to say yes and then worry about doing it afterwards. After we'd wrapped up Covardis, is about a week later, then James sent me this DVD and he just said, okay, just just tell me what you think. I said, well, the, the best thing I can do is, is just rip all the audio and separate, you know, the and edit the music track so I can just listen to the music and, and then give you a, a sort of percentage of muddiness or cleanliness for each individual cue. So I watched the film once and I'll never watch it again. The, the, the sight of Franco Nero's butt cheeks flapping around in a jockstrap is, 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 is something that I wish I, I, I could forget, but unfortunately, you know, one can't unsee it. The thing to do for your art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it, exactly right. So I ripped the audio and then separated the tracks and, and started going through them, just making notes like, okay, this is 80% okay, 20% of it is a little bit muddy, but there's not too clouded by sound effects. And this is kind of how we went for, for each individual cue. It was relatively crummy, but, but I have to say, on reflection, having worked a few years later on The Thief of Baghdad, I can safely say that Salamander was not the worst material that I'd worked with. Uh, that honour goes to Thief of Baghdad uh, sort of multiple times over. For Salamander, it was a stereo track from <laughs> just a stereo rip from the from the DVD, and that was that was a material, and it was a really nice schedule because there was there was no pressure with it as such because 
Jim said, oh, so, so how long do you need? I said, well, I said, it's kind of like a proverbial piece of string question. I, 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 I can't answer because I, I don't know how difficult things actually are until I really start. I said, why, why do we work it this way? That once I get like three quarters of the way through it, you book the orchestra then for a time that you think is going to be convenient because you know that it'll be ready. So this is what he did. But then, of course, when the score was complete, there was the usual situation, which certainly happened with Blue Max, where he says, ah, okay, so we've got this score, but it's a bit short. Do you think you can do a 10-minute suite from Ransom and a 10-minute suite from Cassandra Crossing as well? And I, uh, yes, of course. I, you know, I wasn't going to turn it down because it was more Goldsmith. Like none of the, you know, we, we didn't have access to any of the material, so this was all a takedown. But certainly I remember really enjoying working on Ransom because the sound quality of uh, of what is available soundtrack-wise is so, so bad, you know, because the, the CD was just like a, a rip from an LP, right? I think that's correct, you know, it, 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 and it sounded like... So to actually get that orchestra charging through that score and sounding big and clear that was a real treat don't get me wrong I, I loved working on salamander i think there's some real highlights in it you know that, that, that requiem for the general and sort of like the car chase tracks the, the action tracks are really cool and the end credits are really lovely as well that, that the accordion love theme but the highlight for me from the salamander project was doing that a suite from ransom uh, i i just had a ball doing it because uh, I, I really, really like it, uh, and the orchestra did such a good job on it as well.
it's interesting. I mean, you know, people say that he made bad choices. I guess, number one, it depended on what he was being offered. And number two, part of me almost thinks that maybe he just didn't care. As long as he was working and as long as he had the freedom to do something which he felt was worthwhile and interesting, I mean, musically speaking, I'm kind of getting to the point, you know, the, the more that we find out about him and, uh, <laughs> you know, the the percentage scale of uh, of rubbish films to, to great scores from Goldsmith, the, the more I think about it, the more I think that, that he just wasn't that bothered. That as long as he was working and he was creating, then he was he was happy. And it's lucky for us. I, I wonder if he'd been more choosy about things and had had, had considered his, his project options more carefully, whether we would have had as as many scores from him. Who knows? Another example of which is Damnation Alley, which you did a partial reconstruction for the Entrada release. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I'm I'm lucky my ears work quite well because I'm not really a synth person. I mean, you know, I I, I know my way around Logic and and Cubase. You know, I've done some synth work. I did the the synth work on 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 Salamander and the synth work on Cassandra Crossing. And at anything which required programming, then then I've done it. So you know, I'm competent, but I'm no way a sort of vintage synthesizer expert. But of course, the two things that I do have are patience and I guess tenacity, or they not necessarily separate things. But I, I guess good ears then and patience and tenacity. So three things, and I think that that really helped with Damnation Alley because it was a case of listening to the sounds that the, that Goldsmith was using on on the original score, then actually writing the synth parts. Um, there, there are actually synth scores for Damnation Alley on my Dropbox. So scored for three or four different modules, as it were, synth modules. And then for each of them, building a synthesizer in Cubase from the ground up, starting off with a rudimentary sound, which was relatively or in the sort of like the ballpark area of the original and then manipulating that sound within the synthesizer itself until it got there, as it were. I distinctly remember saying to to Roger and Doug, it's like, okay, I don't know if it's possible, so I'll do it, but don't pay me unless it actually works. <laughs> um, so... I sort of like work on the principle that if we could get the synth sounds, nine, you know, 85, 90% of the way there in terms of tombral compatibility or tombral likeness, then that, that would be sort of like an acceptable margin. Because of course the problems with this was, is that the type of synthesizer he was using didn't come with pre-programmed sounds. These were the type of thing where he'd be using like little patch bays and just twisting a knob one day. And it could just, just it, it's sort of like a trial and error. You twist something here, plug something in there, and all of a sudden you got, ah, yes, that's the sound I want. Well, you know, sort of like trying to recreate that is, is, is like looking for a needle in a haystack. So that the, 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 there had to be some sort of margin acceptability there. I think it kind of came out quite well. At, at least the reactions seem to be quite positive to it, which which I'm I'm really grateful and and, and happy about because you know I'm not a technician, not not really. 
Well, I remember giving it a lot of praise when I played on the archive show. I thought it was a terrific achievement. I'm glad you're happy with it, and I'm, I'm glad the team were happy with it, and I'm glad that Blue listened to it and seemed to be happy with it as well, because it's a really cool score. It's a shame that it was just that one thing which was actually preventing it from being released, the, 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 the fact that those synth overlays had just disappeared into the ether. So I'm glad it's out there. And with the cue signals from the 1977 science fiction film Dalmatian Alley, with music composed and conducted by Jay Goldsmith, with vintage synthesizer overlays by Lee Phillips, we've come to the end of the first part of our interview with Lee Phillips on Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast. I do hope you've enjoyed what you have heard so far. Part two should be with you very soon, but until then, for me, Jason Drury. Please take care and happy listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Radio on Twitter 
and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to Tee Public to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net.